coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, New York State Senator Jesse Hamilton, talking in all caps, NYCHA and IDC that is, will explain. Plus, the legal battle over whether President Trump can block Twitter followers who criticize his tweets. And then this. They say you ain't supposed to be here, black girl. You ain't supposed to wear red lipstick. You ain't supposed to wear high heels. You ain't supposed to smile in public. You ain't supposed to smile nowhere, black girl. Hi, I'm Ashley Ford, and that was Mahogany Brown. Looking forward to talking to her later in the show. And State Senator Jesse Hamilton is going to be with us. We'll ask him about the issues he's most involved with, plus the controversial political group he's involved with. We'll also hear about a First Amendment lawsuit that aims to stop Donald Trump from silencing his critics. But first, these things. If you're going to be a U.S. Senator from New York and reside in Brooklyn, you'd better be aware that a lot of your constituents know exactly where you live. Tuesday night, hundreds of protesters marched on Charles Schumer's Prospect Park West apartment building, angry and disappointed that he'd engineered an end to the three-day federal shutdown without coming away with a deal for DACA. Their message was, our lives are on the line, Chuck. We need a Clean Dream Act now, not in three weeks. Three weeks is the next deadline for the keeping the government open. And when Schumer and the Democrats really have to have a DACA deal in place. Immigration is also an issue at another Brooklyn address, where Latino tenants have filed a class action lawsuit against their landlord. They accuse him of using different scare tactics to push them out of his Sunset Park building, like demanding proof of their legal status. The building's owner, Adele Iskander, himself an immigrant from Egypt, has been accused of making statements like this, quote, I don't like having Latinos, blacks, or Chinese here because they're sedentary. They never move. I need people to move. When they move, of course, he can charge more rent. And how about some good subway news for a change? The Prospect Avenue R train station has reopened after being closed for renovation since June, part of the MTA's $72 million enhanced station initiative. The 103-year-old station was looking, well, like it was 103 years old. But as the Brooklyn paper reports, now it's getting comments like this from commuters. <clears throat> I'm not going to lie. It looks like the future. There are Wi-Fi and USB ports, digital signage, and a mosaic art installation. And even the brand new entrances have countdown clocks. Just watch your step running down the stairs when you discover that your train's almost there. Our first conversation, coming right up. Brooklyn has more elected officials than you might think. There's the borough president, of course, the DA, 16 city council members, 20 state assembly members, and nine state senators. We have one of them with us today. It's Senator Jesse Hamilton, and he represents the 20th district in central Brooklyn. He's been in the news recently trying to help the city deal with the crisis of lead contamination in NYCHA housing. We'll talk to him about that. He's also a member of the Senate's controversial Independent Democratic Conference, or IDC, 
We'll also talk to him about that. Senator Hamilton, welcome to 112 Oh, thank you, Ashley. It's a pleasure <laughs> being here. Congratulations on your program. Thank you so much. Yes. Um, we've been following the story of the cover-up of lead contamination in NYCHA, and we saw that you came out in the front of that. Can you tell us where we are with that right now, what's happening in that area? Uh, Ashley, I grew up in NYCHA housing, so I'm mm -hmm. a child of NYCHA, and I'm really passionate about what's going on in NYCHA because I lived it myself. Mm -hmm. And what is not told in the story is that NYCHA fired 52 lead paint inspectors. Mm. So if that happens, you know, and why are you covering it up? And so uh, we did our study, mm -hmm. and the lead paint uh, levels are higher than in Flint, Michigan oh. uh, during the crisis. So right. we went to the, the local uh, uh, physicians in the community, and Common Healthcare gave free lead paint t testing for our youth. Right. So we found someone to come out and say, we'll do it for free. Uh, and now we're hearing you know, more horror stories of you know, cover-ups within NYCHA. And mm -hmm. it's predominantly people, you know, hardworking people who live in NYCHA. It's, it's a perception that people don't work. But the majority of people who live in NYCHA work there. Mm -hmm. And what's happening is they're denying maintenance uh, because they want to they privatize NYCHA. Right. The, the name of the game right now is real estate. Who's they? Uh, you have the, the mayor, mm. uh, who is building shelters in my district at an alarming rate. Mm. Uh, but with public-owned land, he wants to build million-dollar condos. Right. So why are we building shelters as affordable housing? I have five new hotels in Brownsville. Right. No one's vacationing in Brownsville, but it's a way to, be, as a loophole, to mm. circumvent affordable housing and rent regulations. And so we see all these hotels going up. And people are living in conditions, uh, you know, renting rooms right. at $1,000 a month. Uh, so we can build affordable. I'm an appraiser. I have an MBA in finance. I'm an attorney. I know we can build affordable. But they told us that we can't. And that's a problem for me uh, when the, uh, our government is not being proactive in having, I won't even say affordable anymore, mm -hmm. but we have to have working class housing. How is this affecting the residents in your area? Oh, it's, it's stressful. Mm. Uh, when 50% of your income uh, is going towards housing, right. you know, you know, and that's fifty percent of your gross. Mm -hmm. uh, people are having mm -hmm. a hard time making it, uh, you know, with groceries. You have to choose between, you know, uh, your, your medicine or, or eating, uh, and it's just, it's just a stressful environment. And right. we have over uh, over cramped uh, housing uh, where people you have two families living in a two bedroom apartment, mm -hmm. or we have had some schools where fifty one percent actually of the students are living in shelters. You know, I can't even imagine that lifestyle where you're living in a room and we're paying more money. We're paying $3,000 a month for a shelter. Right. So we can literally keep them in their apartments, mm -hmm. but we're, we're kicking them out, putting them in a shelter, paying $3,000 right. a month. And, and the question is, let's follow the money trail. Who's making the money? Who is making the money? I, you, have, you have a lot of realtors making money, and I, and mm -hmm. I get it, uh, but it's the city and the, and the government uh, to be the safety net. Right. And that safety net is being removed. Mm. Okay, so we talk about a tale of two cities. Instead of getting better, it's gotten worse. One of the things that, um, speaking of getting better, one right. of the things that I read recently is that, you know, crime is down in the city. But the broken windows policing continues, even though we've discontinued stop and frisk. This one policy that, you know, anybody who's read anything about broken windows policing knows that right. it's not only not effective, but it ends up with a lot of people in jail and in certain neighborhoods being policed more heavily than other neighborhoods. What's happening there? Because I know you've been verbally critical of broken yeah, windows Ashley, policing. Ashley, you know, you and I, we live in neighborhoods. We have the same values in all yeah. neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. you, want, you want safe streets and a good quality of life and great education. Mm -hmm. And commands are coming down to people in the police department. Because the officers in Park Slope, 
It's a different mindset of policing than in Brownsville. Right. And so we have to bridge the gap and say, hey, you know, we can't be aggressive mm -hmm. on people who don't have a lot. Right. You know, you have to be more compassionate and put more resources where resources are needed. Right. So we're putting less resources and, you know, and, and, and rather than helping the people on the front end, you know, right. we're spending the money on the back end as far as incarceration. So right. one of our main bills this year uh, is turnstile evasion. Mm -hmm. 20,000 young kids of color get arrested every year for turnstile evasion. All right? And of that, if you don't pay the $2.75, you have to pay a fine of $175. So if you can't pay the $275, <laughs> how are you going to pay the $175? Oh, yeah. And if you don't pay the $175, then you get an open warrant. Mm -hmm. You get an open warrant, and if you get caught again, you go to jail. Mm -hmm. And the place that has more severely mentally ill people than all the other mental facilities in the state is Rikers Island. So we're sending our kids into an environment that is so hostile and torturous that when they come out, they're 36 more times likely to commit suicide. Wow. And Khalif Browder was just icing on the, that God, this, I mean, it's unfortunate he passed away, but he stood his ground right. and said, you know, I'm not going to be part of this criminal justice system. I didn't commit the crime. Right. And so broken windows and the criminal justice system has to be reformed. Right. Uh, we got raised the age passed uh, this year, mm -hmm. uh, last year rather. It was in, they tried to get it done for 17 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and I said, I'm going, I was, I'm a community activist. And I went right. to Albany to get bills passed. So I don't care if it's IDC, ABC, BBC. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get... Let's talk about yeah. IDC a little <laughs> right. bit. You know, we right. had someone on the show not too long ago who, um, while interviewing him, he said that it was his mission to have every person who was part of the IDC be replaced in the next election. That right. that was his mission. And it just, it made me incredibly curious about what exactly is going on with the IDC that people are so upset about. Right. I've read quite a few things. Right. I've listened to some responses from other politicians, but I'd love to get your take on the IDC. What Actually, is it? I'm gonna, give you, you I'm gonna give you a background information. I've been a uh, community activist for over two decades. Mm -hmm. Never got paid for being involved in the community, from being right. school board president, having the fifth best school in New York State, mm -hmm. being on my community board, vice president, being on the precinct council, being the president of my block association mm -hmm. that owns their own brownstone and has affordable housing. So I've been in the trenches uh, right. working with Eric Adams uh, as his legal counsel. So and I went to Albany, I said, I'm going to Albany to make a change mm -hmm. in the lives of people in my, in my, in my, in my district. Mm -hmm. And so my first two years, I didn't get any bills passed. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what, I'm not here. The, the Democrats don't have the majority. We don't have the majority. There's right. 31 Democrats in Simcafelder with the Republicans. Mm -hmm. So the only way we can get a bill passed is if we get one more person from the other side to agree with us. Right. And so with Raise the Age, 12 years trying to get it passed, I got that passed. Mm -hmm. Brianna's Law, seven years trying to get that bill passed, I got it passed. Mm -hmm. Stealing criminal records, five years working on that, they couldn't get it passed my first year, I got it passed. It's about being proactive. Right. It's easy to complain. But if you ask anybody, name one piece of legislation that Mr. Hamilton voted on, Senator Hamilton voted on, that you don't like, they can't answer it. Name one bill that I voted on that you don't like, they can't mm -hmm. answer it. I have a 100% voting record on the environment. Right. Okay, I'm the first person of color to be the chair of banks. And I think that's going to be the gateway for deed fraud, for getting affordable housing, because the money is there. We're in the richest city mm -hmm. in the world. You walk out these doors, you see housing all over the place. So why do we have the highest homeless rate? No one wants to address mm -hmm. issues that are uncomfortable. Right. You know, and I address issues that are uncomfortable because I'm not doing this for the money. I, I took a pay cut. Mm -hmm. I'm doing this for, for the people, the legacy, for my children to say, my father stood up for his mm -hmm. people. My father fought for his people, right? Why do people then say, and this is one of the things that concerns me as a Brooklynite, right. you know, why do people say that the IDC essentially 
caucuses with the Republicans and creates watered-down bills that would pass otherwise. Will, will the IDC need to exist if there is a Democratic majority in the Senate? So you, people feel like you have the Working Family Party, mm -hmm. and the Democrats don't have the majority. If right. we all stood together, we could not get any bills passed. Right. And the adversarial approach to governing doesn't work. We've mm -hmm. seen it now in Washington. The adversarial approach, the government is being shut down, mm -hmm. bills aren't getting passed, people aren't getting paid, and it's going to come a point where there's going to be so much friction that we're not going to be able to govern this country where the president right. is not doing well. So what we're doing is making sure that I'm at the table. Mm -hmm. And if you're at the table, you can get things done. If you're not at the table, we can keep protesting. We've been protesting for so long in our history. Right. You know, and, and getting nothing done. Okay, mm -hmm. so, so the IDC with me, I've only been here for one year. Right. So I don't understand how in one year, all of a sudden, I'm the, the, the problem for everything <laughs> in black America. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So what I'm saying is that the trending, people are talking about Donald Trump, mm -hmm. but the affordable housing issue was before Donald Trump. Broken windows was before Donald Trump. Okay, mm -hmm. poor education in our school system. I have Brownsville, where in some schools only 13% of the kids are reading at grade level. Mm -hmm. Okay, high incarceration rate. So I started the campus, the first of its kind in public housing in the country. Right. Okay, we have coding, uh, we have wellness, mm -hmm. psychiatrists, psychologists, and social workers. The second leading cause of death, all right, for young kids in our community is suicide. Mm -hmm. We have workforce development, right? We have also anti-gang violence, and we also have financial literacy. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm trying to get things that people aren't talking about, because it's hard when you say, well, you've been elected for t 15 years, so why in your district you haven't done anything for education? What are you doing for affordable housing? In NYCHA, I passed the bill to get seniors down to lower floors so they wouldn't be trapped in, in the elevators or trapped when the elevator broke down. So, Senator Hamilton, yeah. I actually have to cut you off because we're out <laughs> of right, time. Actually. But I would love to yeah. have you back to continue this conversation Thank because you. what you're talking about right. obviously directly affects the people of Brooklyn. It directly awesome. affects awesome. me. Awesome. And people are going to want answers and people are going to want to hear more about the successes. And you have a bright future ahead of you. Um, Prime time in, in no time. Thank you. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you so much. Love yeah. having you. God bless. Now we have an installment of Based in Brooklyn. The borough is home to tons of talented, industrious, and innovative people. And of course we want to talk to them and share their stories with you. Today we've got Jamil Jaffer, director of the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. Jamil was once the director of the ACLU Center for Democracy. He sued the government on numerous occasions and notably secured the release of the Bush administration torture memos. We'll ask him about that, but mainly about what he's doing with Knight and a lawsuit against the current president for blocking critics from his Twitter account. Jamil, welcome to 112BK. Thank you. Talk to me a little bit about this case and how Knight became involved with it. Sure. Yeah, so this is a, uh, it's a new institute. It was established at Columbia last year, or 2016, to focus on free speech issues in the digital age. and. I was employee number one, we're now 10 people, uh, mainly litigators, and we focus on uh, free speech and freedom of the press cases that relate to new technology, new communications technology. We're thinking about issues like encryption, government surveillance, corporate surveillance, mm -hmm. those kinds of issues. And uh, this case is a challenge to President Trump's practice of blocking people who criticize him or his policies on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we learned about this in the same way that everybody else learned about it because we're on Twitter and we right. see people saying, you know, I criticize the president and now I've been blocked from his account. Mm -hmm. um, 
And, you know, initially, I think most people reacted to that by saying, well, you know, the president is a Twitter user like everybody else, and he can right. block people just like everyone else. Uh, but the more we thought about it, the more we uh, started to think that the president's Twitter account was something different, something mm -hmm. um, uh, that had, uh, you know, the president was using the account to make official announcements, to mm -hmm. um, uh, comment on uh, American policies, to defend his own policies. So he turned it into a public forum. Yeah, he turned it into, at the very least, uh, uh, a broadcast tool for official government statements. Right. And, you know, as you know, Twitter is an interactive forum, and mm -hmm. there are comment threads, and the comment threads are um, places where ordinary citizens can uh, talk to one another and talk to the president about right. what the president is saying. It's kind of like a, um, a digital version of a town hall with the mm -hmm. president standing at the front of the room and ordinary citizens in the room just communicating directly with the president and with each other. Right. And once you start seeing it in that way, um, uh, the First Amendment seems suddenly more relevant because right. while ordinary citizens are certainly um, uh, have every right to block people who criticize them or harass them or abuse them Absolutely. on Twitter. A public official is in a different position. If you're mm -hmm. using government power, you can't exclude people from a forum simply because they disagree with you. Right. That's the basic meaning of the First Amendment. So we sued the president on behalf of a number of Twitter users, a number of his Twitter followers, who mm -hmm. were blocked after they criticized him or mocked him or insulted right. him. Or yeah. just made him upset in some way that he wanted to exactly. hit, block it exactly. like it's hot. Right. Can you tell me, you basically had to describe Twitter in the filing. Yeah. yeah. Um, is this uncharted territory for someone to be suing and say that, like, you can't block people, like, on Twitter? Yeah, I mean, it is. It, it is. I mean, there is this uh, well-settled body of law having to do with public forums. Right. And, but those are all analog-era public forums, town hall, city council meetings. Right. Uh, those kinds of things. There's there is uh, you know, a lot of law about in what circumstances mm -hmm. do they count as public forums under the First Amendment? In what circumstances can a public official ban you from one of those forums? Right. Uh, what's novel is the application of that law to this new context, this mm. digital context. Um, but it's not just about the president. Our case is about the president, but there are public officials all over the country who mm -hmm. now engage with their constituents mainly through social media. That's true. So um, you know, we're litigating this case um, because this is democracy now. This is the way democracy works. And to set a precedent. Yeah, and we don't want public officials um, to be able to... Um, to sterilize public debate in the way that the president is doing, mm -hmm. to sanitize public debate in the way the president is doing it. Right. Uh, you know, it's an important thing that public officials hear what their constituents really think. Absolutely. And one of the things that I've seen on Twitter a lot lately, and I want to get into this because this is a free speech matter, is that there are a lot of people who from my humble opinion, seem to deeply, deeply misunderstand the concept of free speech. And they think that free speech, in a lot of cases, means that you should not be criticized for saying yeah. something because now you have free speech. Which then <laughs> makes me think that there might be a lot of people <laughs> in this country who don't understand their First yeah, Amendment yeah. right. Can you talk to me a little bit, because I know you've been on some panels basically called, what is free speech? Like, <laughs> right, what right. what are people getting wrong about well, their idea yeah. of so, what I mean, it, free it, speech it's is? It's definitely one of the most uh, abused concepts we have yes. in free speech. Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, part of that is, is free speech is used in a lot of different ways. The concept of free speech means mm -hmm. a lot of different things in different contexts. Um, uh, the First Amendment protects citizens against censorship by the government. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's, that's sort of the core meaning of the First Amendment. But when we talk about free speech, we're not just talking about censorship by the government. We're talking about uh, all of the rules and norms that govern our relationships with one another and not mm -hmm. our communications with one another. Uh, and so it sometimes makes sense to talk about free speech uh, uh, in a kind of broader cultural way. Right. Uh, and not just in this in, in this legal way. I mean, right now, you know, a lot of the um, uh, the most controversial free speech issues have to do with questions of free speech and equality. Right. Yes. Um, I mean, after Charlottesville in particular, this conversation about uh, talk to me about that a little bit because I think yeah. that's when people started to. And I know that you're not with the ACLU anymore, mm -hmm. but I think that's when people started to be a little frustrated with the ACLU, and that's when that conversation again of what is free speech really came up. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I haven't been at the ACLU in 18 months, so I wasn't there during mm -hmm. the Charlottesville stuff, and I can't speak for the ACLU. Right. Um, more generally, though, on those on those kinds of issues, I I think it's a good thing that the ACLU represents people whose views most people at the ACLU detest. You know, right. I think it's a good thing for a few different reasons. First, because um, these kinds of hateful speakers, and you know, I don't want to use euphemisms on Charlottesville, maybe mm -hmm. this is as hateful as it gets, you know. These kinds of hateful speakers exist in the world. Right. Uh, the cases don't create them. They exist already, right? right? Um, and I think it's important for the rest of us to know what those people are saying. Mm -hmm. you know, I, th I, I think that whatever, uh, you know, there are obviously tragic consequences to the, um, uh, the events in Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. uh, a woman was killed there, right? So uh, I don't wanna, you know, I don't wanna suggest that anything went right in Charlottesville. Right. But one thing that the Charlottesville uh, events did is provoke a debate uh, mm -hmm. nationally. I think that a lot of people who are in denial about the support that the far right has in the United States, the support that racists have in the United States, mm -hmm. uh, are not so much in denial anymore. Right. After the Charlottesville rally, there were counter rallies all over the, all over the country, including in Boston, right. there were 40,000 people. You know, all of that happens only because we see what, uh, what these hateful speakers, we hear right. what these hateful speakers want and what they, you know, what they say. And you know, I've always been told in my life by my parents, by my grandparents, it's important to know who your enemies are yeah. and what they're thinking yeah. and what they have to say. It's important to be able to point at them and say, I know you said this and I know how you feel on that and so I can protect myself with yeah. that information. Yeah. You know, I really, really wish we had time to get more into your time at the ACLU and more of your accomplishments that you had there. Unfortunately, oh, invite we me back. don't. Come back. You're coming <laughs> right. back. We're already ready to invite you. <laughs> Okay. back because we want to get back into that but thank you so much for being here today Jim. thank you thank you don't wear this don't smile at that don't have an opinion don't dream big don't dream at all that's what society tells black girls and that's what spoken word artist mahogany brown is fighting against I'm going to be talking to her on Thursday night in the Brick Ballroom at 7 p.m., but today we're getting a little taste. Mahogany Brown, so happy to have you here. Thank you, Ashley. 
So the title of your book is Black Girl Magic, which I love. Thank you. But there are a lot of people who don't know what Black Girl Magic means. Can mm -hmm. you help them out? Black Girl Magic is inexplicable. It is everything that black girls turning black women embody. Mm -hmm. It is the things that they laugh at us about. It's the things that become the butt of the joke. Mm -hmm. And it is the things that they then try to commercialize and commodify. Mm -hmm. So Black Girl Magic is really just a, a mantra, is a, a war cry for us to love ourselves and reclaim our own. I love that. I love that as a definition. I love that as a mantra and as a movement. Yeah. Okay, talk to me a little bit about poetry. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when I was in school, I've always been a poetry lover. Mm -hmm. But I feel like in the past few years, poetry has become like more of a force in the mainstream than I've ever seen before. Mm -hmm. What do you think? It's funny, I've been doing poetry since 1998, mm -hmm. and I've been a full-time poet since 2001. Writing has always inspired me, but poetry, it felt kind of off-limits because it was like the joke, right? It's right. the, you know, the, the beatnik, you snap, you're kind of off of it, you're too deep for anybody to really understand what you mean, but it really is the, uh, the pulse, mm -hmm. it's, it's the heartbeat of a people, and uh, poets are the first ones to tell it like it is. Oh. Um, so I think that that's why like there's this like grab this grapple with it now where people love it and they're mm -hmm. flocking to it because it cannot be censored. Mm -hmm. Where do people find, in your opinion, some of the most exciting and relevant poetry today? Mm. The most exciting and relevant poetry. I mean, it, it's happening right at our barbershops. It's happening on the street corners. It's happening. Um, in our schools with young people, it's happening at poetry slams, it's happening in the books, it's happening in movies. Mm -hmm. It really is everywhere. Poetry is the thing that they are trying to commercialize now as this like quick soundbite, but it's, it's, it's always been here, you know what I right. mean? Back from uh, Dolomite and uh, Margaret Atwood to like now we have Jason Reynolds who has an entire book uh, in verse. Down. Yeah, and now it's gonna be a movie and, and those things are possible. It's always been possible, right? We have hip hop, which is a lot of a lot of those MCs are are self-proclaimed poets. Look mm -hmm. at Nas. So you have poetry always being there and with us. It's just do we do we see it for what it is, or are we afraid to attach ourselves to it? And I right. think now we're not afraid. We're not. We understand the power. We absolutely do. Mahogany. This was just a taste, okay. but I want people to hear so much more from you, okay. which means they've got to show up yes. Thursday, 7 p.m. You know we're sold out. Both of us. We're it's sold out. Yeah. We're sold out? Yeah. Well, we're sold out. <laughs> but they can come and be in the stoop, and they can yes. watch it simulcasted. So this stoop right here? Yes. Excellent. Yes. Thank you so much Thank for being you. here. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today. Tomorrow we'll be back to talk about covering criminal justice and eradicating sex trafficking in the city. I hope you can join us. You ain't supposed to be no more than a girlfriend. You ain't supposed to get married. You ain't supposed to want no dream that big. You ain't supposed to dream at all. You ain't supposed to do nothing but carry babies and carry felons and carry weaves and carry silence and carry families and carry confusion and carry a nation, but never an opinion. Cause you ain't supposed to have nothing to say, black girl, not unless it's a joke. Cause you ain't supposed to love yourself, black girl. You ain't supposed to find nothing worth saving in all that brown. 
You ain't supposed to know that Tina, Beyonce, Cecily, Shonda, rhymes, shine, 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 black girl. You ain't supposed to love your mind. You ain't supposed to love. You ain't supposed to be loved up on. You only supposed to pose voodoo child, vixen inside. You're supposed to pop out babies and hide the stretch marks. You're supposed to be still. So still they think you statue. So still they think you chalked outline. So still they keep thinking you stone. Until you look more Medusa, then Viola Davis. Until you sound more Shanae, then Kerry Washington. Until you're more side-eyed than Michelle Obama on a Tuesday, but you tell them you are more than a hot comb in a Washington set. You are Kunta Kinte's kin. You are a black girl worth remembering, and you were a threat knowing yourself. You were a threat loving yourself. You were a threat loving your kin. You were a threat loving your children. You black girl magic. You black girl fly. You black girl bring it. You black girl wonder. You black girl shine. You black girl bloom. You black girl, black girl, and you turning into a beautiful black woman right before our eyes. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley Ford, and is produced by Ross Tuttle, Fred Brown, Shireen Bargy, Emily Bogosian, and Kritzi Roberts. Our show is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer, and is recorded by our studio technical director, Eric Haugasek. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leith, and Sasha Mathias. If you want to get in touch, you can leave us a comment, tweet us using the hashtag 112BK, email us at 112BKpodcast at gmail.com, or leave a message at 347-504-0801. And make sure you subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or whichever podcatcher you use. 112BK is part of the Brick Radio family. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio.